the apostle says to us, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. In whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. This is God's word. Well, a few years ago, uh, we moved here in, in 2018, and we were living in Indianapolis, Indiana, and I was working uh, for a real estate company in the city of Indianapolis, kind of filling some time in between calls to ministry. And uh, when the folks I worked with heard that we were moving uh, near Columbia, South Carolina, uh, they said, oh, when you get there, you need to go check out this, uh, this new development that's going on in the city of Columbia called the Bull Street District. Some of you might be familiar with that downtown. And it sits on the grounds of the old South Carolina State Hospital, which was a hospital for the mentally ill. And so uh, a few weeks after we moved down here, we took a trip into Columbia to, to peruse the city uh, to see what was up there. And we ended up walking around this Bull Street district. And, uh, you know, the Firefly Stadium's there. There's restaurants there, other things. But the remains of one of these buildings from the old mental hospital still stands. The Babcock building, it was huge. It had several wards for hundreds of patients. Very interesting architecture, but it had been vandalized and burned out and in disrepair. And as we were walking around, we saw on one of the doors a sign that said in big letters, condemned. The building had been condemned by the state, by the city, and it was unfit for human uh, occupancy. Stay out. This was not a confident structure to be in. You know, the sentence of condemnation on that building meant that no one had confidence going inside of it. Something might happen. You cannot confidently be in that building in its current shape. You see, the Apostle John in this text is after a renewed confidence for those who feel condemned by their failure to live up to the high bar of Christian love that he just wrote of. So John ends the section before exhorting us not to just love in word or talk, but in deed or truth. And so we see uh, coming into this passage, the natural question of, uh, have I loved enough? If I'm in Christ, I know I'm loved by him, I know his love for me, but I hear this high bar of love have I loved enough? Am I abiding in Christ? You know, have I done enough gets at a question that condemns us. You know, all of us here this morning, whether you're a Christian or not, face a couple of questions, you know, broad questions that strike at the core of who we are. Those questions are, am I enough? And can I live confident when I know my failures? How do I have confidence when I know my failures? Have I done enough? Am I smart enough? Am I good looking enough? Is my future secure enough? Is my social media presence active enough? Do I have enough? You know, ultimately, these thoughts 
our condemning thoughts if we let them go to their ultimate ends. And they're driven by a heart that is not at rest, a heart that is not at ease, that is trying to find confidence in all the wrong places. And so we're going to take those questions, those struggles to the text because God's word speaks to our struggles. God's word is, is for us, is to give us hope. And so this morning, our big idea, the message that John puts before us is that only in Christ can you live with a confident assurance before God. Only in Christ can you live with a confident assurance before God. So what, is, what does this look like? He gives us a pathway to live with a confident assurance. And that pathway is this. First, we see a heart at rest, and then we see dependent prayer, and then lastly, we see following the commands of Christ. So a heart at rest, dependent prayer, and following the commands of Christ. This is the pathway towards confident assurance. So let's begin in verse 19. You can look with me. It says, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. You know, John begins saying, by this, which links us back to the preceding verses where he had the injunction to love not just in word or talk, but in deed and truth, to love with action, to love with truth. You know, John, like much of his letter, is concerned with the whole person knowledge of Christ, to know that we know. And so uh, this knowledge comes about through acts of love. If you want to know that you're in Christ, you will flow out into deeds of love and truth. You know, uh, this resonates with the rest of Scripture. You know, James 2 says, what good is it, my brothers, uh, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Martin Luther, one of the Protestant reformers of the church, said this. He says, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. So John is standing on firm ground here and saying that we are reassured, our hearts are reassured that we are of the truth as we love indeed and truth. But we want to be clear that it is not acts of love and deeds of truth that guarantee our assurance, that give us standing before God. That is all a gift, not by works. But faith must flow out into works. And what this, this first verse is saying is that that gives us assurance, that brings us into deeper knowledge of Christ. You know, our confession of faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith that this church and our denomination subscribes to, says this, on good works, you can go look it up uh, in the chapter. It says that our good works not only edify the brothers, but they strengthen our assurance. You know, it's not very often that we talk about uh, good works and assurance in the same boat, but here they're inseparable. So the point of verse 19 is to tie us back to loving indeed and truth and say that as, as believers, as Christ followers, joyfully show forth their loving, it reassures their hearts. It instills confidence that they belong to Christ, that we're living in the truth. But John is taking here a multi-pronged approach to Christian assurance, 
to living confidently. And so he moves on in verse 20 and says that for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. You know, what is John getting at in saying this? Well, I think he's after something deeply hopeful. You see, if our assurance that we are of the truth, uh, saying must flow out into deeds of, of love and truth, and this is, this is the realization that we're abiding in Christ, then what about the heart? What about the conscience that is sensitive to these things and says, have I done enough? Am I loving enough? Am I working this out enough? You know, John is a pastor, and he's speaking pastorally to his audience and to us through the Holy Spirit. And he's talking about that, that inner accusing voice of condemnation. Have I done enough? Can I rest from my labors? You know, those deep questions that many face. And John makes it abundantly clear and says, when those thoughts arise, God is greater. He knows your hearts. He knows everything. You know, maybe it's not inner accusation. Maybe it's accusation from outside. Someone questioning your motives. Someone trying to quantify how much you have loved. Someone comparing you with another person. Maybe it's seeing all the poverty and justice and brokenness in our world and realizing you can't fix it all and taking that upon yourself and being crushed by it. John is speaking to that and saying that the Father knows everything about you, and he's greater than your heart. Rest assured, he's not asking you to fix everything. He's asking you to be faithful, to depend on him, to walk daily, asking for his provision, and, and to seek opportunities to love. You know, those who grew up with unrealistic expectations or perfectionism or other things can be really crushed by some of these commands in First John. You know, if you don't love the brothers, you abide in death. What do you do with that? Am I abiding in death? And so John here as a pastor is saying, when your heart condemns you, if you're in Christ, know that he's greater than your heart. He knows everything. This is supposed to be deeply assuring, especially for the, the overly scrupulous conscience. You know, there's a God who knows you better than you know yourself a sovereign God who knows everything about you and loves you intimately. He doesn't ask you to solve all the world's problems to alleviate all the suffering. He asks you to live daily depending on him and looking to further his kingdom in big ways and small ways. You know, someone who is in a nursing home who is in their last days doesn't have the luxury to go about helping people so what do they do with a verse like this? Well, God knows their hearts. They can still love and deed in truth and not be able to get out of bed. God knows their hearts and assures them of his love. Ultimately, this puts our hearts at ease. You know, I think there's also a word here for, um, if we have comfort for the scrupulous the overly scrupulous conscience, then we have a challenge for the deadened conscience. Conscience, You know, God knows everything, can hit some people in a different way, uh, saying, oh, he knows everything. He knows that I've been seduced by the idols of comfort and pleasure and security and worldliness. You know, maybe instead of a scrupulous conscience, yours has been lulled to sleep 
by the seduction of a fallen world. You know, rather than harp on this, I want us to bring us back to what John is after, which is assurance. You know, if, if your conscience is deadened, if it's been lulled to sleep, then ultimately you're not having the fruit of assurance that is yours in Christ, that comes from abiding in him and walking out your faith. You know, uh, the idols that we serve of comfort and, and success and ease and all of these things offer us really no assurance. They actually put us on a treadmill. They don't ultimately satisfy. And they take our hearts further into restlessness. But Jesus says, come to me, take on my rest. I know your hearts and I am greater. And so there's a call here for both the scrupulous conscience and the dead-end conscience to find their ultimate rest in Christ. So the question is, how is your conscience this morning? When John uses heart, he's getting at the inner motivations, the soul, the, the, the whole person, which often pricks our conscience. So if it's not pricked at all, or you're finding yourself having no or little concern uh, to serve others, to, to realize your faith, then this morning cry out, for a renewed assurance of the love of God in Christ. Say, Father, my conscience is not bothered by this, but I know that your heart is for the poor, that you have loved me with an unending love, and I have not flowed out in love to others. Lord, forgive me. I come in repentance. I want to know your assuring love as I live out your love. So this takes us to verse 21. You know, John doesn't stop there. He takes the assurance and the confidence one step further. And he gives us verse 21, which starts with beloved, a very pastoral tone. Little children, beloved, friends. These are all things John uses. He says, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. You know, this is not just self-confidence to be proud of yourself, but this is confidence before Almighty God, the ruler of the cosmos, the one who knows everything, the one who is perfectly holy and just. And John is saying, a heart that's not condemned has confidence to stand before the just judge of all. You know, when I was a child, I would say I struggled with a overly scrupulous conscience. You know, I had various struggles with obsessive compulsive disorder, which bled into perfectionism, which meant that I really valued cleanliness and I really valued being careful. And as a child, these things were rather crippling. And so you combine that with an instance that happened when I was a child. You know, I was at my grandfather's house and I, I was getting a bike out to ride that was in his garage. And I was carefully, there was two cars in the driveway and I was gonna drive the bike down the middle. And one of those cars was my grandfather's brand new black Chevy Silverado. Brand new, probably 500 miles on it. And uh, here goes Andrew and the handlebars down the middle scraped, one big scrape all the way down the side of the new truck. And so I was condemned. I was uh, I didn't know what to do. I didn't want to face my grandfather. I had lacked, I had no confidence to approach him. And so I took off riding my bike around the neighborhood thinking that things would just kind of fix themselves. 
but uh, I, I circled back to my grandfather's driveway and all the men were huddled around the truck. And uh, here comes Andrew riding up in the driveway, sullen and without any confidence. And uh, what I remember from that moment is my grandfather coming up to me and making sure he knew that he loved me more than that truck and that that truck would be taken care of no problem. So I think that's just an example of what happens when we allow Jesus to be our confidence before the Father. You know, Romans 8 that we received earlier says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. The Spirit has set you free. If you're here this morning and your conscience is nagging at you, if you're here this morning and your conscience is dead, but something else is nagging at you, then know the good news of the gospel that there is now no condemnation for those in Christ. That you can have the confidence that your soul longs for to stand up in the morning and know that even in your darkest days and your moments of failure, when you don't like the way you look, when you don't feel like you've got enough money, when you don't feel like your life is successful enough, when you don't know if your future is secure enough, you can know that you can be confident before God that he knows you, he's greater than your hearts, and he cares deeply about you. He calls you, as John does, his beloved. He's given you the spirit of adoption, we also see in Romans 8, to cry, Abba, Father. He values relationship with you, which is why he gave you his Holy Spirit, to unite you to him by faith. And so, brothers and sisters, in this first point, uh, to live confidently before God means we have to have a heart at ease. And to have a heart at ease means you put all of your stake on the Lord's confidence given in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. Your record of guilt is paid for. The verdict over you is clear. Your sentence is freedom. Your sentence is life. The Lord looks upon you as righteous. You are holy. These are words of confidence. So in summary of this point, we can live confident and assured in God by having hearts at ease. So moving on, we see that we can also live confident and assured before God in dependent prayer. Let's look at verse 22 to flesh this out. You know, verse 22 says, uh, flowing out of a confidence before God, John then says, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. You know, John is a very kind of a black and white, all or nothing type of writer. And so uh, this verse has been wildly interpreted in many ways. You know, some have taken this as kind of a quid pro quo. Uh, when you read what, whatever we ask, we receive because we keep his commandments, uh, some folks have said, oh, great, I'm going to keep his commandments and I'm going to get whatever I want. That is not at all in view what John is getting at. So let's unpack what he is trying to communicate here. Um, in John's gospel, Jesus invites his disciples to do the same thing, to ask boldly and they'll receive. He said to them in John chapter 14, he says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. 
And then further on in our letter, in 1 John, in chapter 5, John repeats what he says here, but adds something. He says, whatever we ask according to his will. And I think that phrase, according to his will, is important. You know, if we look at Jesus in the garden, praying to the Father the night before his betrayal, the night before he was going to take on the sins of the world, he cries out to the Father. He said, if it be your will, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus submitted to the Father's will. He asked for the cup to be removed, but ultimately the Father put him to death so that we might all experience life. You know, uh, I think the best way to understand this verse is not a flippant, narrow understanding that uh, is, is man-centered in the way of, Lord, I need a new car, give it to me. You know, um, so often those prayers come out of uh, a sense of our, our worldliness, a sense of, uh, if only I had this, life would be better. But the, the Lord knows everything we need. He supplies us with everything we need And the life of a Christian is one of faith and dependence and striving to do the Lord's will. And what does the Lord want from us? He wants our holiness. He wants our devotion. He wants our delight for us to be satisfied in him. And so when this text says, um, keeping his commandments and doing what pleases him, this is what's in view, is that as you are walking in the Lord's will, as you are depending upon him, as you are believing in him, trusting in him, you know what to ask. Because you can ask, Father, may your kingdom come. May your will be done. Give me today not what I need 10 years from now, but give me my daily bread. Lead me not into temptation. Forgive me as I've forgiven others. These are the prayers that Jesus wants to be on our lips. You know, prayer is ultimately an act of communion with God. It's not just a place to get things from God. He wants to dwell with us. He wants to commune. And in that, we know that his plans are so loftier than our plans. So I love what Tim Keller says in his book on prayer, that God will either give us what we ask or give us what we should have asked if we knew everything he knew. I think that is a great way to put what this dependent prayer looks like. Father, I don't know all of your plans. I'm coming to you as a child to express my my anxiety, to express my, my grief, to express my joy, to express my delight in you. These are the things that are going on in my life. Father, would you be at work? I trust you. I know that you'll take care of me. And he promises to give you what you need to take care of you. It may not look the exact way that you want it to look, but the Lord provides The Lord holds his children fast. And so in short, prayer is not chiefly a means of securing things from God, but in bolstering our confidence in him. So I think this confidence that we receive by by having Christ as our advocate before God the Father, of standing before him, completely known, completely loved, not being condemned, bleeds into our prayer life. I want to take a little excursus and look at a parable in Luke 18, a parable about a persistent widow. And Jesus tells us that this parable is about prayer. It's about how the disciples ought to pursue him in prayer. So uh, Luke 18, 
I'm just going to read it and then make a few comments. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, he will, will he find faith on earth? So a life of confidence before the Father means pestering the Lord with our prayer. You know, this persistent widow, the text says, bothered the judge. She was relentless, almost to the point of annoying this woman. He just said, okay, I'll do it. You know, you think if you have children of how persistent they can be, where they will ask you something 16 times and finally you just cave. Okay, I'll play the game with you one more time. They come to us like that because they're confident in, their, in the fact that we love them. They will pester us. They will bother us because they know they're secure in our love. You know, the Lord wants us to bother him with our requests. He wants us to continually beckon him with our prayer life. We're not going to annoy him. He wants us to do that. He wants us to come to him as children who are dependent, who take everything to him in prayer, who commune with him because he bends his ear. He actually hears us in prayer. And you know, sometimes when we're in the midst of a, an argument or a conflict or we just want to talk something out, sometimes we don't want someone to fix everything. We just want to be heard. How many marriage conflicts can be resolved when someone like me can just say, honey, I don't need to fix this. Just, just tell me. I'm all yours right now. In prayer, we have full access to the triune God. And we can come confident to him. We can persist with him like this widow to continually knock on his door saying, I, Father, I need you. I need to hear from you. And he promises to be there for us. And so this morning, uh, to bolster up our confidence, we can be persistent. And so this is deeply challenging for me as I've wrestled with this parable, as I've wrestled with what John puts before us in this, this life of dependent prayer, because I don't believe my prayer posture is, is one of deep confidence, you know? It's so often tinged with a desire to get what I want, to get out of a sticky situation, to just cry out when I need something. You know, a life of dependent prayer is, is walking with Jesus in both the good and the bad, is, is having a, conversational prayer life with the triune God, joys and sorrows, petitioning him with requests. You know, um, so often we can treat prayer as a means to an end rather than a way to commune with God. So this morning, uh, he longs for us to commune with him to bolster up our confidence so we can live confidently before God in dependent prayer. 
And lastly, this morning, we want to look at verses 23 through 24 and see that we can live confidently before God as we follow the commands of Christ. Uh, Verse 23 and 24 say, And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. You know, John is fleshing out further what he wrote in verse 22 uh, from following his commands and pleasing him. And so he defines the commands as this, belief in the name of the Son of God and loving one another. So let's unpack these. First, believe in the name. That doesn't sound like something you do with your hands or feet. It doesn't sound like work. But John elevates it to the force of a command, an imperative. He's like, this is the command. Believe. Now, why would John say that? What does it mean to believe in the name of Jesus? Well, it's believing in something that is real, something that has profound substance, something that is not just out there. You know, believing in the name of Jesus means believing in all Jesus was and is. It means believing in the divine Son of God, begotten from the Father before time began, the Jesus who became incarnate by the Holy Spirit, who lived a sinless life, who died an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world, who rose victorious and ascended on high. And we're called to believe in that name. And what does belief in the name do for us? It brings about faith, trust, hope, peace, And so John elevates belief to the force of a command to say, you cannot live a life of love unless you believe first. The indicative of what is true about Jesus then flows into the imperative. And when you get those mixed up, you lose the gospel. And so John, with forcefulness, says, the first command is to believe in the name of Jesus, because in his name is the power to actually love. You see, Believing in the name of Jesus is not merely doing something for God. It's putting your whole self into him, embracing his love. You know, Christianity is not a blind subservience to an unknown God. It's a relational encounter with the risen Christ, the friend of sinners, the one who knows you and loves you, the one who says, take my easy yoke upon you and learn from me. Let me lead you by quiet waters and restore your soul. That's all encapsulated in believing in the name of Jesus. And then that's someone you want to follow. That's someone you want to listen to. That's someone you want to obey because he is for you. I believe in your name. I believe that you are my only hope, that you are the grace that I need. And I'm going to follow you in your commands of loving God and loving neighbor. You want to follow someone who is for you. And so that's what John is saying. And so let's just stop and ask this morning, if you're here this morning, uh, what do you believe in? Do you believe in the name of Jesus and all that that implies? Have you placed your trust in the name of Jesus? Or are you still trusting in some other name that will not satisfy, that will not give you confidence? Friends, I urge you, believe in the name of Jesus. And for those, all of us here, believing is an ongoing thing. Each and every day, we have to walk in faith and repentance. 
believing that God has died and risen and is for us and repenting of the ways in which we have failed to live in his light. So the work of belief is the work we do throughout our entire life. And at the end of verse 24, we see John ends with familiar language for this letter, that of abiding in Christ. Whoever keeps his commands abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So this is the first mention of the Holy Spirit here in this letter, in this deeply assuring set of verses, and this is the icing on the cake, because the gift of the Holy Spirit is for empowering our command following. The gift of the Holy Spirit is so that we know that we're not alone as we walk out the Christian life. You know, Romans 8 again says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. You know, as heirs, we are part of the Father's family and we do the Father's work because he has given us all that we need. We live out what's been given to us. So friends in Christ, this morning you are not alone. As we hear the high call to love from John, we also hear that we have everything we need in Christ by the Holy Spirit. This is the great message of confidence before us this morning. To really know that we know the risen Christ. And so landing the plane, we want to say that if you're in Christ, you can live with a confident assurance before Almighty God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you uh, have given us your word to give us hope, to challenge us, to convict us, but ultimately to force us to rest alone in you. And so I pray for each of our hearts that we would know what it is to be a heart at rest And out of that heart at rest, Lord, we would follow with a full heart after you in deeds of love and truth in service to this world and your kingdom that all might proclaim the name of Christ. So, Father, may it be so. May your kingdom come in our midst, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.